Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, the images that shame loyalism in Northern Ireland. At a bonfire in Carrick, Fergus, effigies of three female politicians were hung from a bonfire where children were playing and crowds cheered as they were burned. One of the three, Naomi Long, leader of the non-sectarian Alliance Party, said she felt physically sick after seeing pictures of the fire. The other two women pictured were Mary Lou MacDonald and Michelle O'Neill, leader and deputy leader, respectively, of the nationalist Sinn Féin. Another Sinn Féin politician, Gary McLeave, said his children asked why Daddy is on a bonfire after his poster was placed ready for burning in Belfast. Sinn Féin says these are hate crimes. Geoffrey Donaldson, leader of the DUP, the leading unionist party, has condemned the effigies. The bonfires mark 11th night. The next day is the so-called Glorious 12th of July, which celebrates the victory of Protestant King William of Orange over Catholic King James in the Battle of the Boyne in 1690. Let's get a word now with John Kyle. He's a councillor on the working class Titanic district on Belfast City Council, and he represents the Ulster Unionist Party. I think it's fair to say from previous conversations with John, he's very much a moderate progressive unionist. But John, what do you make of these effigies? Well, Adrian, it was a shameful episode on the 11th night. Um, uh, One wouldn't in any way seek to justify it. Um, My own party leader, uh, Doug Beattie, was very prompt in in labelling it utterly vile. And I think that that's an accurate response to it. The 11th night is historically a night when uh, unionists and loyalists who would be working class unionists go out and celebrate. Uh, It's part of the 12th, uh, which, which again relates back to the victory of King William of Orange, as you said, over King James. So it, it is a traditional holiday celebration time for unionists or for unionism and burning bonfires has been part of that. It's part of a whole string of celebratory activities, but there are sectarian activities associated with it. And this year in particular, some uh, particularly appalling events took place. And I've also seen pictures, of course, social media makes the sharing of these images so much easier than they were in the past, of the word tag, which is an abusive word for Catholics being placed on bonfires as well. Yep. Uh, Now, it has to be said, Adrian, that hundreds if not thousands of these celebrations take place across Northern Ireland. They often start off early on the 11th and they have uh, children's parties and pensioners' teas and things like that. And the vast majority, and of the events that take place the following day on the 12th of July, pass off quietly, uh, pass off peacefully. Um, people meet their friends, have a wonderful time. The bands are out and parading. The, the banners are unfurled and carried. It's a very colourful, a carnival-type atmosphere. But, you know, we live, uh, we live in a post-conflict society here. And 30 years of violence and of civil conflict has taken its toll. It has left a legacy of anger, pain, resentment, fear. And that's not very far below the surface 
here in Northern Ireland. So we are we are a traumatized society and we are a post-conflict society. And endemic in that is sectarianism. It exists in all communities, on all sides of our political spectrum here. People take advantage of this and get involved in some, some disgraceful sectarian behavior. But that is a minority. I think the vast majority of people want to have an enjoyable family-friendly holiday celebration, but there are a minority who use it for sectarian purposes. Isn't it intrinsically divisive, though, for one community in Northern Ireland to celebrate its victory over another 300-odd years ago? Well, we're delving into the complex history of Ireland, and Ireland's history is a history of conflict, It's a history of division. And I suppose every nation's history contains elements that they're proud of and elements that are dishonourable. And often we reflect back on victories in the past. I think in the Second World War in the United Kingdom, we, we celebrate the victory over Nazism and over the Third Reich. But it did contain elements in which in which we were complicit and actions that were not necessarily honourable or good. So history is mixed. And the Battle of the Boyne, I mean, mean, again, history is is multi-layered, but the identity of people in Northern Ireland, of the Unionist majority, is tied up with their Protestant faith, with their uh, identification with the United Kingdom, with their sense of being British, and, and their sense of being... I suppose you you would say trying to be masters of our own destiny, wanting wanting to live in, in our own country, to accommodate those from an Irish background who identify as Irish, to live together peacefully as neighbours and as friends, but without undermining that sense of Britishness that is very important to many unionists. I suppose if people celebrate the victory over Nazism, though, in 2022, there aren't many Nazis in the UK. There aren't many Nazis in Germany. But when Protestants celebrate a victory over Catholics, well, there are a lot of Catholics in Northern Ireland. That's what makes it problematic in 2022. Well, I think you're probably reading too much into it, Adrian. I think the 12th of July is more of a celebration of unionist culture. Now, I am not an Orangeman. I've not never been a member of those organisations. But part of their reason for their existence was to fight for freedom of religion. So they see that celebration as a celebration of, of, of their freedom to worship as they see fit and as they believe is consistent with, with the right way to engage with God and to express your religion. So it's not. We're not just simply rubbing Catholics' noses in an, in an historic victory. We're celebrating our, our sense of who we are as British, Protestant, Northern Irish people who want to live peacefully and respectfully with their neighbours. And I'm sure most Protestants, most loyalists do, but the kind of effigies that we've discussed 
are evidence of members of the loyalist community who it seems are bent on provoking their neighbours. Where has that come from? Well, Adrian, that's come from decades of animosity and of conflict. Uh, I mean, this year will be 25 years from the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. At least, uh, is it this year or next year? In 1998, it would be 2023. That is well within living memory. Many, many people here lost loved ones during during the conflict. Uh, we had, uh, you could call it a, a, a terrorist campaign. You could call it a civil war. You call it pol- uh, political violence for 30 years. Uh, that, you know, people's memories still retain those events. So there, so you do have a reservoir of suffering here. And I think in many ways, Northern Ireland has been remarkable for the way that it's begin, it has been able to move forward to offer some form of reconciliation, to try and reach an accommodation, to try and get over much of that damage and trauma of the past to live together peacefully. So I, I think that I think we're we're actually we should be commending the people of Northern Ireland, you know, rather than just highlighting uh, some people who act in a an unacceptably sectarian way. You say that you've never been a member of the Orange Order. There are orange marching bands who parade through predominantly nationalist areas. That's got to be provocative, hasn't it? The pattern today is is that bands do not uh, march through areas where the residents are opposed to those bands parading. But, But that's not the case everywhere. Not everyone opposes bands, even from a nationalist background. And I think you've got to appreciate that that many bands play have a large repertoire of music. Many choose to play hymn tunes or First World War uh, songs when traveling through, when marching through through mixed areas. So I think it's I think it is a misrepresentation to imply that bands make a point of walking through nationalist areas playing provocative sectarian tunes. Now, some do, and many unionists do not approve of it. But in many areas throughout Northern Ireland, particularly rural areas, bands are welcomed and admired and behave respectfully toward their Catholic neighbours. We've discussed the district that you represent in Belfast, John, a working-class district a working-class loyalist district. And we've spoken before about how identity, that sense of being loyalist, and therefore that sense of being part of Britain, albeit separated by the Irish Sea, in a sense trumps any relatively small economic benefits that a particular government might deliver for that community. I think it's difficult perhaps for people on this side of the Irish Sea to understand that depth of affinity. Yes, uh, Adrian, it has to be said that some of the displays, the provocative displays that took place 
in a minority of situations this 12th, I, I think are could be partly attributed to the ongoing festering uh, uh, frustration and annoyance with the Northern Ireland Protocol. So the Northern Ireland Protocol does put a border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. For unionists, that is highly objectionable because unionists see themselves as British and as part of the United Kingdom. So we have an internal border within the United Kingdom. We're now 18 months since the Northern Ireland Protocol was implemented. I think it's recognised on all sides that the Northern Ireland Protocol does negatively impact the balance achieved through the Good Friday Agreement. The East-West Strand has been undermined. And I think there is an ongoing anger. There, there, it's like a festering wound in the body politic. For the majority of people in Northern Ireland, it's not an issue. But for a significant minority, it remains an issue. And the fact that after 18 months, nothing appears to have changed. People acknowledge there's a problem, but it's a failure of politics to address the problem and to resolve the problem. And for and for your man on the street, your loyalist or unionist on the street, who is annoyed and angered and feels that his identity has been undermined by the Northern Protocol, they're asking, what is going on? How can we not resolve this issue? When everybody recognises there's an issue, when the landing zone is clear, how are our politicians continuing, you know, to fail this section of the population? And I have to say, in my view, Boris Johnson was complicit in this political failure and has used the Northern Ireland Protocol for his own personal political benefit instead of forthrightly and determinedly seeking to resolve the problem. Do unionists not feel when they've seen the prime minister who represents the Conservative and Unionist Party effectively bartering away Northern Ireland through the Northern Ireland Protocol, do they not feel, well, look, we don't want to be part of a United Kingdom whose leaders don't really want us? Well, no, because uh, we can't change who we are and we are British and, and whatever our dissatisfaction with the current administration in Westminster, we remain British. And I think I, I, I would be I would be rightly criticised if I fail to say that that this failure of politics does not rest entirely with the British government. The Irish government, as Professor Paul Bew pointed out to them, are co-guarantors of the Good Friday Agreement. And as co-guarantors, they have a responsibility to ensure that the East-West arm of the Good Friday Agreement is respected and and is supported. So so I, I think there has been a failure on the part of the European Union and the Irish government to recognise the problem and to act to address it as well. So I don't want to place all the blame uh, with Boris Johnson. Is it fair to say that within loyalism, and as demonstrated by some of these issues, there is just an unhealthy dose of old-fashioned bigotry? I think in all of us there is a vulnerability to be a bigot or to act in a bigoted way. 
Was it Solzhenitsyn who said that the line between good and evil runs through the heart of every man? I think we all have the potential to act in a bigoted or sectarian way. I don't think unionists are any more sectarian than other groups of people, but I think they are vulnerable. Uh, I think that that unionism is fearful. There's an existential fear that Northern Ireland could become just a page in history and that we could be subsumed forced into, driven into United Ireland against our wishes. And that fear, I think, does lead to an insecurity and a stubbornness and obduracy into uh, sometimes a stubbornness that goes to extremes and to becoming angry and to animosity. So, so yes, there's a vulnerability there. Yes, unionists can be uh, really bloody-minded, but I don't think that we're any different to any other community. Uh, and I think this, I think in, in terms of the sectarian abuse that's taken place in recent days, there's been, you know, sectarian abuse toward young loyalist women. There were vile comments made about a man who died after falling from a bonfire. So, you know, sectarianism, it's in the environment here. It's ingrained in us. And I think we have done remarkable things to try and move away from sectarianism, to address it, to challenge it. Uh, but it's work in progress. You know, there's a lot still to be done. And I think the response to, to the events that took place over the 11th should be an engagement with those communities where these disgraceful scenes took place. We should be saying to them, we should be saying to them, why did you do this? Do you appreciate the damage that you're doing to yourselves and to your community? Explain to us what motivated you to take these actions that are so clearly unacceptable. And engagement, you will find that many of these, many of the people involved are young men, angry young men, alienated young men, young men who feel that they're being ignored. And this is their form of protest. This is their angry reaction to what they feel is an unacceptable situation. Do you think that those who were responsible for hanging those effigies should be prosecuted for hate crime? Yes, I do, actually. I think that as unionists, we are often too slow to call out what are blatantly sectarian and unacceptable actions, and that we should be more forthright to condemn that. And that if people do commit hate crimes, then they should be brought before the courts and tried, and if found guilty, then, then they should be punished. We've talked a little bit about the Good Friday Agreement. Many people on this side of the water would say that that was undermined by the Brexit vote because thanks to the Good Friday Agreement, you could live in Northern Ireland but have an Irish passport and consider yourself to be Irish. You could also consider yourself in law to be British and have a UK passport, and it was a, a compromise that cut through centuries of division. But once we have Brexit and the United Kingdom is no longer part of the EU, that compromise is much harder to sustain. Is that a fair analysis? Yes, I wouldn't disagree with that. I think that the European Union provided scaffolding around which the Good Friday Agreement was built. It has caused problems. 
is probably the greatest challenge that we have faced since 1998. I think that there is a way through it. I think that as a country, we can come through it and find an acceptable agreement, accommodation, and that we can then move on from there. I think Northern Ireland has a tremendous potential. I think it's a, it's a country full of good, well-intentioned, honourable people. I think we have a way in which we can live together as Irish and British uh, in a respectful and collaborative way. I think many unionists like myself consider, consider themselves to be British and Irish and some also and European. Um, and so, so, so our identity is, again, multifaceted. I think uh, we had moved a considerable distance forward before Brexit. Brexit has knocked us back, but that doesn't need to be a fatal blow. I think that we can come through this and can find a future where, where everyone can prosper and where Northern Ireland can, can move on to something better. Great to speak to you, John. I hope you're right. Thank you very much indeed. Councillor John Kyle from the Titanic District on Belfast City Council. I'm Adrian Goldberg. Don't forget, our work is funded by subscriptions to our wonderful monthly newspaper, The Byline Times, free and fearless. Well, I say free, free of outside control, but you don't have to pay for it. Take out a subscription, get details at bylinetimes.com, our newsbreaking website about how you can subscribe and your subscriptions not only get you that brilliant monthly newspaper, they also help to support our work on the podcast and Byline Radio as well. That's at bylinetimes.com. Thanks very much indeed to John. Thank you for listening. We'll see you all again soon. Cheers and bye.